This is The Herb Walk with Jessica Baker. On today's episode, we talk to Mindy Green, herbalist and aromatherapist. We discuss plant conservation, aromatherapy, and her business, Green Sensations. Join us on today's episode of The Herb Walk Podcast on iTunes. Okay, Mindy. So if you want to give our listeners a little bit about your personal history, how you came to be interested in herbalism or aromatherapy or just plants in general, I'm sure everyone would like to know a little bit about where you came from. Okay. Well, there there wasn't a real demarcation line. It was kind of a gradual process, but all through high school, I was always really interested in health. And I used to spend my personal money on vitamins. And then one day I looked at my row of vitamins on my bedroom dresser and I thought, there's got to be something more to health than this. So I came across some books on natural foods. You know, this was the late 60s, early 70s. So there wasn't a whole lot of books out there on herbs. But I really came into the natural products industry through diet and my interest in nutrition. And uh, so that kind of brought me into the plant world because along with that were some herbal teas. And I was amazed at what I was reading about herbal teas and simple teas like peppermint and chamomile and things like that. And my little town had a tiny little health food store and I would go in there and I would just kind of learn a little bit more about what this was and you know how to cook brown rice, <laughs> kind of stuff, really, really basic stuff. As I kind of, I, I started working at a natural products store in Sonoma County, and um, that kind of led me deeper into using herbs because um, the kind of diet I was interested in, you know, they really didn't talk much about a variety of herbal teas, just a few. And I found a couple of herb books, you know, the classic Back to Eden there weren't a lot of herb books back then, but I just kind of fell in with a really great crowd. And, you know, there's a saying in, in the herb world, the plants called my name. They just really spoke to me and it just felt right to be doing that kind of thing. Even though my, my family and friends were kind of like, you know, that's not really a career <laughs> at the time. It wasn't really a career. But um, myself and many of my contemporaries really were on the cutting edge of the natural products movement. And it's funny that you say that back then it wasn't a viable career because that's still something I hear from so many herbalists today is they still their family members or even themselves say, well, this is like my hobby, but there's no way I can actually make money at this or make this my career. So you've definitely, you know, proven them wrong then and still today I feel like there's so many opportunities for people we just have to be creative um, like you have it seems like you kind of um, were on the forefront of this whole movement of people working within the natural foods or the natural products industry with an herbal I guess um, influence or admiration do you did you have any formal study of like chemistry or science or, you know, nutrition, or were you just soaking up as much information as you could from reading books? Because I know you went to Purdue and you've talked a little bit about how I, I believe that kind of gave you an edge in the natural products industry. Yeah, but Purdue wasn't until the 90s. Oh, okay. And there just wasn't anything, but Purdue did offer an advanced course in essential oils. and. um you know, I, I, I completed that program and I just was clamoring for anything I could find because there really just wasn't very much. And as you said, if you wanted to make a living doing that kind of thing back in that day, you had to be very entrepreneurial, you had to be very creative, and you had to be willing to live on a whole, not a whole lot of money because back then it really... You know, it was a lifestyle, but I, I'm not sure I could call it a career at the in, in those days. But um, many of my colleagues and contemporaries started a lot of the mainstream herbal companies that are out there now, as well as the herb schools that are out there now. You know, I was just lucky enough to know the right kind of people to advance my my learning and most of us were very, very self-taught. There wasn't any place to go to school. So a lot of us really were ones who created a lot of the learning centers 
that still exist. And in many cases, they still exist. That's a great topic of conversation, I think, because there's so much um, division even within our herbalism realm about whether or not certification is necessary to, um, you know, call yourself an herbalist or to be a clinician. And so, I mean, I'm a member, I'm a professional member of the American Herbalist Guild. You were a founding member and a professional member of the guild. But yet, like you said, you were the people who became the teachers and started the schools. So, I mean, you're herbalist without having any certification because there wasn't any. How important do you think it is, you know, for the future of us becoming clinicians, but also just for, you know, herbalists in general? Do you think it's important that they get a certification at one of these prestigious schools? Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting topic, and we could probably spend the rest of our time discussing that. <laughs> but just just a brief overview of that, you know, because herbalists tend to be very unconventional people um, with unconventional ideas, and there's a diverse opinion about that. Personally, I think it depends on what you want to do. If you want to be a community herbalist in your small town and um, help people, it's definitely important to from somebody who's reputable. I don't know that it's all that important to be a, um, a professional member of the American Herbalist Guild. I think it's a great organization. And as you said, I was one of the founding members. But I think that you can be an effective herbalist without being a member of that guild. And there are so many branches of herbalism. You know, there's Ayurveda and Unani and TCM and Western herbalism. And there's a lot of inroads to that career path. And, um, and there are some schools now, some, even the naturopathic colleges have kind of career tracks on botanical medicine while the job, I think the jobs are limited to mostly the natural products industry, not completely, but mostly the natural products industry. But that industry has changed a lot too. And many of the people who began their careers and built multi-million dollar companies, you know, retiring and selling to larger, in some cases, big conglomerates. So the whole industry is, is really shifting. So you know, getting back to the original idea, I think it really just depends on what you have as a career path in your goals. And so if you want to work for a company, like a mainstream company, let's say traditional medicinals, you probably need some chemistry and you probably need one of those colleges. Um, I know that the one in, in Maryland that used to be Thai Sophia has some job training for that kind of job. The American College of Healthcare Sciences, which is an online course out of Portland, Oregon, um, is also another resource, as is Bastyr University and, and NCNM, um, the Naturopathic College in Portland. So it really just depends. You can go to, um, there, there's probably, if you live near um, a decent-sized city, there's probably somebody teaching some local herb classes, even at the JC. You know, you never found that 40 years ago. But there are ways that you can make inroads into learning more about this as a career path and um, also deciding how serious you are about making it a career path. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. And as someone who, you know, just started with plants because I wanted to learn how to make, you know, an herbal tea or make my own salve and just being inspired by Jane Bothwell in general to have a deeper connection with plants. Um, I'm always in conflict because I do have some professional training and I am a member of the guild, but on some level, I really just believe anybody who wants to go out and learn something about plants and actually spends time in nature and maybe, you know, obviously if they're going to harvest, know something about plant ID without having to know the Latin botanical name for it. Um, I really appreciate the fact that Anybody who has an interest in herbs isn't going to be shut out just because they don't want to have a, you know, more professional path with it. So it's always good to hear. You know, a lot of my friends, and I mean, all of us are in our, at least our 60s now. A lot of my friends that I started this kind of career path with way back when, many of them are not members of the American Herbalist Guild and they own schools and they're practicing herbalists and so I think, you know, you can do it. It just depends on how much that kind of legitimization is important to you. 
So if you feel like, you know, like as an acupuncturist, it is state to state depending on, you know, whether we're primary care or secondary care or can order labs or can't, you know, all of those things. If we were going to put herbalism in the realm of, you know, new healthcare paradigm of allopathic medicine, do you see a place for that anytime in our near future? Or how do you think that's going to play out, especially if we do go towards a you have this certification so you can work in this hospital or in this integrative care clinic? You know, do you how do you see that going for the future? You know, it's a really good question because I think we are on the cutting edge of that starting to happen. And you see it in um, certain, like you you probably know that for many years, I've been a contributor to uh, the University of Arizona's integrative medicine program. And, um, you know, I just do a very small piece of it. But when I look at their curriculum, these are already licensed uh, medical docs who are in a fellowship to learn about integrative care and herbs are certainly part of that. So the herb industry on that level is making some inroads into the medical community. And I think it's great in, in many small towns. I know that there are liaisons between herbalists and, and medical docs. I think that herbalists need to be really careful not to, you know, kind of tread into that realm of, of treating and, you know, they have to be very, cautious with their language, which is why acupuncturists <laughs> kind of have um, a good leg up in terms of their languaging and how they approach illness and treatment um, because it's such a different system. And Western herbology is more of a kind of medical model. So, you know, people have to be careful. And I think in terms of, of making inroads into hospitals, you know, I, I worked in Denver at the University of Colorado at the Anschutz Medical Clinic. This was quite a number of years ago, but at the Cancer Center in um, integrative care patient services. And so people would come in and ask questions about integrative care. The staff had a, quote, you know, integrative medicine department, which at that time didn't really uh, include very much. It, It depends on what you were being treated for in the hospital. But you know, they did massage, they did acupuncture, they were cautious about herbs in those days. So I think it really depends on the open-mindedness of the clinic that you are working with. I know in the years that I lived in uh, the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, they had several medical systems that were very open-minded to things like, you know, essential oil um, diffusion and massage and things like that. Um, I think we're still making inroads into that. And so it'll be interesting to see what unfolds in the future. But I think the people who are making the biggest inroads into that are already medical docs, open-minded and have a fair amount of training in integrative care already. Well, definitely. Thank you for that insight. Those are things that, you know, I feel like a lot of us, we just don't know because we are more kind of plant people and maybe just we want to help. But in terms of actually knowing what's going on in the allopathic realm, um, I think that was really great information. Well, and I think also that one of the advantages that essential oils have over herbs, at least in, in one application, is that in diffusion or in massage, you know, that that is really the way that these oils are making inroads into the medical community um, because they're not really being taken orally, even though you might absorb some things through both of those methods of delivery. Um, But they're really considered part of palliative care. And um, while you might be in, in, if you were in Europe, it might be aromatherapy might be part of your primary care protocol in this country, it's beginning as palliative care. And I think that's a really good, safe inroad where you're just relaxing the person and maybe mitigating some side effects of the medication they might might be on or some of the symptoms of their disorder um, and just bringing uh, relief on um, sometimes a physical level, but oftentimes an emotional and mental level. Well, that is a great place just to take a quick break, and then we will get back and talk to Mindy Green a little bit more about um, aromatherapy and essential oils.
we are back with Mindy Green, and we are going to talk a little bit more about essential oils and aromatherapy. Um, you have been in the aromatherapy realm for I don't know how many decades. I know four, uh, four decades in the herbal products realm. When did you really start to focus more on aromatherapy? Well, you know, when I worked at that health food store uh, in Sonoma County in the mid-70s, we did carry essential oils. And shortly after that, I moved to Victoria, British Columbia, and um, with a few partners had an, had a, an herb store and we sold essential oils there. And that was really when I started learning more about them because I was selling them and there weren't that many books, but of course there was The Art of Aromatherapy by Robert Tisserand. I think that was published around 1974. So that was my main inroad to that information. And then basically just um, experiential learning. There wasn't a lot of places to, like like herbalism in the day, there, there weren't places to go to learn more about that. So it was really just kind of hands-on. And um, I learned a lot by making a lot of mistakes on myself. And um, I wasn't, of course, using them on other people at that time. I was just you know, using them maybe for some perfume blends and adding a little bit to massage oil here and there and to the bath and things like that. And I did want to, I, I don't want to shortchange aroma or uh, herbalism in that last little segment we were talking about palliative care. I did want to make a plug for herbs for palliative care. And it's one of the, one of the things that herbalists often either forget or when new herbalists are coming up, they only think of oral use of, of herbs. And I really want to um, make a plug for using herbs in the bath. And that's another really good approach to palliative care using herbs. A lot of people don't um, you know, think about that. And I always say hydrotherapy is a lost art, but using herbs, and this is especially too with, true with children, when maybe they don't want to taste an herb that isn't the most flavorful thing, um, or they're just too fussy, or they're too young. And herbal tea in the bath is can be so, so effective for palliative care. And even, you know, common things like fussiness and insomnia, treating skin ailments that are rashes or itchy or, you know, things like that. Well, yeah, as somebody who was an herbalist first and then, you know, shortly thereafter got interested in aromatherapy, I'm always amazed at how many aromatherapists aren't herbalists, because for me, <laughs> it was like an obvious transition. You're an herbalist and then you're an aromatherapist. But, you know, there's so many people who want to use essential oils who, you know, consider themselves to know a lot about essential oils or aromatherapy. Don't transmit that over to herbalism. Um, so what would you say to someone who's like, I want to use herbs, or I only think essential oils should be used for everything. Um, because I know you probably have, you know, a pretty good opinion on that. I, I do. And I really appreciate you bringing that up because it's something that I have been talking to aromatherapists about for the last 40 years and uh, trying, trying to sort of say, you know, you guys are a little bit reinventing the wheel because all of this information is out there in the herb world. And some information is translatable from herbs to essential oils, not everything, but many things. And I think it is so important for aromatherapists to know their plants. And that mindset is trickling down. In fact, at the AIA conference, the Alliance of International Aromatherapists in 2017, their focus is the com combined use of herbs and essential oils. And... Um, your listeners can look on, on the AIA website and uh, find out more about that. It's in the spring of 2017. And I think it's so, so important because so many people come to um, aromatherapy without really knowing their plants. And you're right that herbalism makes a really easy transition to using essential oils because you already know the basics. And I remember once I was with this um, perfumer he was in a, you know, a supposed essential oil expert, and um, it was in France, and we were just kind of doing an impromptu herb walk, and I just said, oh, there's Clary Sage, and he, this guy had been a perfumer for decades, and he said, oh, is that Clary Sage? And I was floored. <laughs> so yes, I think it's really important for people who use essential oils 
to know about the plants that they're using for so many reasons. I mean, not just the chemistry of the essential oil, but to make an emotional connection. And I think this is something that I think makes you a much better herbalist when you have that deep soul connection to plants and to nature. And for me and many of my colleagues starting out, that was the impetus for us to move into this career field because it was our spiritual path. And being with plants and being in nature just felt right and felt good. And we, we felt like we could share some of the information that these plants had. And um, whether it's in the form of, of a, an herb or an essential oil, I think that that information and that connection still translates. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I don't think there's one herbalist out there who's going to disagree with the statement that you just said in terms of it really is our deep connection and our reverence for these plants that kind of, if it didn't start, it definitely propelled our, um, you know, I don't want to say lust for knowledge about the plants, but definitely it um, propelled our wanting to have a deep connection and understand it on so many different levels. I mean, I know that you have supported United Plant Savers for a long time. And as herbalists, you know, most of us also consider ourselves, you know, activists or environmentalists. In terms of essential oils and herbalism and the herbal products industries, if that's not too much to cover all at once, how do you feel about a true sustainability model within these industries? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that when Kathy Keeville, my co-author, and I wrote our, our first book, Aromatherapy, A Complete Guide to the Healing Art, when we were updating it, we added us a chapter on sustainability because it is a very important piece. And and you're right, that, that reverence uh, from herbalists that um, just translated to our desire to do some earth healing and um, care for the plants and care about recycling and ecology and the state of our soil and all of those things. It's all, to me, it's all part of herbalism. It's, it's earth-centered medicine. And our, our concern for sustainability, whether it's herbalism or essential oil distillation, is right in there. And, um, you know, this was something that had been discussed uh, for years before United Plant Savers really came about. And uh, Rosemary Gladstar, who was, you know, such a pioneer in so many areas of the natural products industry and, and herbalism, started that organization. And I think it's very, very important for us as herbalists, whether you're, you know, wildcrafting in your local area or um, you are a purchaser for an herb company, we all need to take a look at uh, how we're wildcrafting and sustainable wildcrafting and sustainable farming and the care of our soil because that's really the basis of the nutrients that are found in our plants and you know it just it just trickles down to everything. So uh, I'm not sure I answered your question, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so you're saying like you know if you do if you do own an herbal company, you know make sure that you know your growers or your sources are actual sustainable. Um, I mean for I guess our current consumer model of how, you know, most herbal product companies or essential oil companies do business and they claim sustainability. I mean, I don't know if you can answer or not, but are they actually, you know, do you feel they are actually sustainable or are these just marketing, um, you know, great marketing to make you think all of their, you know, like in terms of essential oils, all of their herbs are coming from small distillations and things like that. Yeah, I think that the herb industry is a little more traceable than the essential oil industry because, first of all, you can look at the herbs. You've got organoleptic testing. You know, you can see them and smell them and taste them and touch them and, and look at their color and things like that. Um, and I think it's also there are a number of, of really good herb companies that sell bulk herbs that are aware of these issues and they do their best so that the consumer doesn't really have to know everything. And so it is a good idea to vet your company. And um, I, I was always a big proponent when I had a small cottage industry. I loved when customers called me and asked me questions, and I was happy to answer them. And I just think that, you know, we, we vote with our dollars in terms of who we're going to support. And if you have any questions, you should be calling your supplier and asking them those kinds of questions. And 
I've always said if they really don't know how to answer them, if they don't know if your essential oil is distilled or cold pressed or if it's an absolute or whatever it is, um, then I would move on to another company that has um, enough information on their personal staff that they can answer those kinds of questions in their small, whether it's, you know, no matter what size the, the company is, but they should have some customer service person that can answer those kinds of questions. So it, it is harder and uh, with essential oils. And um, I don't mean to be plugging my book every time, but there is a whole chapter on adulteration of essential oils and how they might be uh, misrepresented or reconstructed or uh, adulterated, even with another essential oil. So it is a little more tricky with essential oils. And, you know, there are lots of companies who claim that they do GCMS and many of them do. Um, but most consumers don't know how to read those GCMS reports. So it doesn't really help. And I think the most that we can do, um, especially if you're a beginner in that industry, is really to trust your supplier. And, you know, I because I had my own company for many years, I've worked for other essential oil companies and I worked for one very large essential oil company. And one of the things that I noticed is that in terms of supply chain, there aren't that many places to get essential oils. And um, so in many instances, people are buying from the same supplier and claiming that there's a superior. So, you know, it is kind of a, unfortunately a buyer beware and there's not a standard. There's no um, agreed upon definition of like what is a, a, a clinical essential oil or an authentic essential oil or a pure essential oil. Those are all words that are just marketing terms from certain specific companies. So really just querying your supplier, I think, is the best thing at this point. Um, maybe there will be standards at some point in the future, but right now it is kind of a buyer beware. All right. Well, with the buyer beware, let's just take a really fast break. And then we're going to come back with Mindy Green and talk a little bit more about essential oils, aromatherapy, and this new buzzword of terpenes that for aromatherapists is not a new word, but it seems to be the new buzzword for those within the cannabis industry. Okay, we are back with Mindy Green, aromatherapist, herbalist, consultant, activist, all around um, wonderful plant person. Um, let's just to kind of stay on this topic of sustainability or education just for one minute. You talked about Purdue before. Do they still have their aromatherapy program? Not at Purdue. I know that Professor James Simon left Purdue and went to Rutgers University. And I'm not sure they're still offering it there, but um, he took that, he developed that program and took it with him when he went to Rutgers. And, and Rutgers, I think, is where next year's AIA conference is going to be held. Okay, great. So for those interested in wanting to learn maybe more about aromatherapy on a professional level, Rutgers potentially, and do you suggest any other, um, either university or online course, if you're allowed to promote anyone? Um, sure. I mentioned already that there were two courses, one at Bastyr. I think NCNM in Portland has one. Um, Maryland University that used to be called Thai Sophia, they all have clinical herbalist programs. And then there's the American College of Healthcare Sciences, which is achs.edu out of Portland. And they have many, many classes on herbs and natural healing and even spa development and essential oils and so forth. And they are state certified. I think the other three that I mentioned are also have some certification. So yeah, there, and there are many, many others that just aren't as don't have the same kind of certification, but are also good places to go. And you can find many of those links on the AIA website, the Alliance of International Aromatherapists, and also the NAHA website, the National Association of Holistic Aromatherapists. And they actually are having their annual conference this October in Salt Lake City in, in mid-October. So people can go to the website and learn about that. And they're doing, they are doing some herb walks and things like that there. So I, I know on, on, for many organizations, the, they are definitely getting aware that knowledge about plants really will enhance 
your practice of using essential oils. And in terms of sustainability, is there a you know, a website or a watchdog group or anything that people could go to it because you said in terms of, um, you know, just the words that are made up for marketing, are there, is there somewhere that people can go to find more out about, Hey, I use this essential oil. I want to know if it's typically sustainably grown or harvested. Can you shoot them in a right direction? I don't know of any that are focused on that for essential oils. I know that there is, of course, United Plant Savers, and they have herbs to watch and herbs that are endangered. They have a whole list of things, and they, uh, you know, I, I encourage everyone to become a member. They have a great newsletter. They did do something on sandalwood oil recently. They did, had a whole conference around sandalwood, not just the tree, but the essential oil and its sustainability. So they can go to the website and get back issues of that. And also um, that a similar article to the one that was published in the United Plant Savers newsletter was also published in Herbalgram magazine a couple of issues ago. And um, so and that th both of those were written by um, the executive director of United Plant Savers, Susan Leopold. Great. So there's definitely information out there for people who want to make sure that they are spending their dollars the way they think they're spending their dollars. Yes, exactly. So within this aromatherapy world, you know, we have things that we call terpenes. And I don't want to get too much into chemistry, one, because that's not my strong suit. And two, because people tend to gloss over about chemistry. And I did have a good interview with Lisa Ganora where she talked in her fascinating way about phytochemicals and all of their reactions. Um, and she really did make that really easy for people to understand. Um, but, you know, cannabis is getting so popular. And if you look up terpenes online, it sends you to all of these cannabis websites. And to me, I think it's exciting that we're looking at the phytocannabinoids and we're looking at the terpenoids and we're saying, okay, what kind of synergistic effect are they having? But what's your take on one, you know, just the medicinal use of cannabis, but also in terms of the cannabis products are adding these terpenes, uh, these terpene profiles in after um, they make the product to, you know, be like, oh, now we're going to say this is lemon flavor or this is mint flavor. Um, and I know they've been doing that a lot in the food industry, you know, for decades. But what's your take on just this whole new terpene craze within the cannabis industry? You know, it is hot. And you're right. People are talking about it. And I've even had a couple of, of clients in my business where I have used both uh, cannabinoids and uh, essential oils together for specific purposes I don't know how everyone is doing it. And my concern is that it's kind of like standardizing uh, a tincture where you plump it up with a, an isolated compound. Um, and that I, I don't have a judgment one way or the other necessarily about that, except that um, if you have, if you come to this healing modality with a holistic mindset, you might not want that isolated compound, whether it's a, a monoterpene or a sesquiterpene or whatever. But essential, the crossover is that essential oils are made up of uh, terpenes. And there are monoterpenes, which are 10 carbon chains, and sesquiterpenes, which are 15 carbon chains, and diterpenes, which are 20 carbon chains or char carbon atoms. And they have um, terrific medicinal value. And in terms of the uh, terpene terpenes that are found in cannabis, if you notice that there is kind of a lemony smell to many of the cannabis buds, um, they're very um, tart and potent, but there's a little lemony underlying note in them. And those are some of the monoterpenes that you're smelling. Um, again, I'm not a, a cannabis expert, but um, just to plug the American Botanical Council and the Herbalgram magazine, the publishers of Herbalgram magazine, they have been focusing a lot on this subject and a lot on cannabis. In fact, the current issue has quite a, a lot of information on there. It's another great organization. I just want to say to people, if, if you are interested in herbs, and they've actually done quite a lot on essential oils as well, 
That is another organization that I definitely recommend people join because Herbal Graham Magazine is like no other magazine. It's very cutting edge. And if you're a member, you'll be able to get to their herb clips, which kind of dumbs down the information for all the rest of us who maybe don't have as scientific a background as many of the people who are reviewing these um, clinical studies or things like that. So anyway, it's a great organization. They have focused on some cannabis issues lately. And the other person, um, Ethan Russo, is a PhD. Actually, I think he's a medical doc. He might also have a PhD, but he's a medical doc. And he is um, pretty well known for talking to the cannabis industry about terpenes. And I think, Jessica, you were with me at the last American Herbalist Guild conference where he was the keynote speaker and did speak on that subject. So if your readers want to try to Google him and look at some of his articles that he has written on monoterpenes and cannabis, they will find a lot more information than I would be able to <laughs> to tell them. Um, yes, Ethan Russo, he is a neuroscientist and a medical doctor and a cannabis researcher and all around. He really is a great guy and he's been really open to talk to me. I just randomly will email him a question that's probably so below his intelligence level. Um, but he's always been really good about responding and um he talks a lot about how he feels like the um, just the way that they're adding in the terpene profile after the fact is really missing a huge opportunity to actually study specific cannabis chemovars, you know, let's say, you know, what we would call sour diesel, um, and to say that it is truly sour diesel and just not something that somebody wanted to sell, so they put that name on to then be able to be like, okay, you know, a well-grown sour diesel has this terpene profile, and then wouldn't it be great if we could actually grow the plants, you know, consistently enough to always keep at least, you know, a somewhat similar profile. So then we can say, okay, well, this is sour diesel. We know from studying that it has this profile. And then instead of being like, okay, we want to make a fake sour diesel product, so we're going to add this profile in later, but to actually harvest that profile and use it from those specific plants instead of, you know, adding in like limonene or pinene later on. As someone who's been in the natural products industry, can you tell us a little bit about I don't want to say these fake terpenes, but, you know, when you can go and buy like limonene on the market in a 20-gallon drum, what's the extraction process within the food industry for that terpene? Yeah, that's a really good question, and um, I, I will do my best to answer it. Um, I want to just point out before I go there that in many instances in the aromatherapy world, plants are cloned. They are not crossbred, so they have the same DNA, and so they're clones, so you get the same, well, it, you don't necessarily get the same um, extraction from year to year just because of environmental conditions and how much sunlight and, you know, how cloudy it was that season, how much rainfall fell on that crop and so forth and so on. It's kind of like how grapes are different from year to year, which make wine vintages unique. So, but they do clone some lavenders, mostly the lavendins, um, so that they have that same aromatic profile from year to year as much as they can within nature. So I don't know if, if they're doing that with the cannabis plants, but um, this whole subject has been touched upon in the herb world for decades because um, I, I mentioned earlier standardization. So when you isolate a, a specific component, whether it's in milk thistle or in um, ginkgo or whatever, the you know fairly standard things that um, have components that will plump up what are considered the active ingredients, um, you know that's been a controversy in the herb world for a long time. And there are some companies who sell kind of what they consider the isolated um, compound within an essential oil. They're called bioactives, and um, they will sell that simple compound or blend it with some other things, but plump it up with what they consider the most medicinal profile um, chemical constituent found in the plant. And I think 
you know, like the herb world, everybody's got a different opinion about whether that's good or not. So I think it depends on your your usage of the either the plant, the herb, the tincture, the capsule, the essential oil, and what you're using it for. And as you probably know, Jessica, in terms of milk thistle, if you're dealing with something, some serious liver problem, especially tox, uh, acute toxicity, your milk thistle tincture that you made at home is probably not going to do what you need a product like a standardized milk thistle will do um, in an in acute situation like that. So I really think it depends on what you're going for. And in terms of how those things are isolated, some can be isolated from the natural product itself through fractionation, and others are made synthetically. They're made either from other terpene oils like um, pinene, or they're synthetically produced. And when you say synthetically produced, what do you mean by that? Well, from a petroleum product. Okay, that's what I was wondering, yeah. if it was petroleum-based, yeah. because that's what I had read, but it's always good to like get it fr- straight from someone who knows actually what's going on. Right, and then you'll have a lot of arguments between people. I know when I was at Purdue, um, one of my professors was Vero Tyler, and I asked him that question about what do you think about an isolated compound or um, an essential oil that's reconstructed from synthetics to uh, compare to something that's grown in the ground. And he said, there's absolutely no difference. If you take D-limonene that is synthetically produced and you take D-limonene that's fractionated from a plant, the chemical structure is exactly the same. And I said, well, what about the life force? And you know, if you, if you knew Vero Tyler, <laughs> you would know that he would just poo-poo that and say, oh, I've been hearing that stuff from you herbalists for years. You know, that makes no difference at all. So it really just depends on what kind of either either previous mindset you come to the industry with or previous training or, you know, however you see this. Some people feel like that it's really important for a plant medicine to have been exposed to soil and water and sunlight and so forth instead of being synthetically produced. Well, I think that's one reason why I love Chinese medicine, because I don't know any Chinese medicine teacher who would say it didn't matter if it actually had a life force involved with it or not. (laughs) And definitely as an herbalist, I could see just my own bias tells me that absolutely there is a difference um, just because we need, I don't know, I just feel like we, we don't need it that far removed. And then as an environmentalist, why would we want, even if it's a byproduct of the petroleum industry, why would we just want to have one more product that's made from such a, you know, non-renewable resource, you know? Yeah. And why would we want to support that industry? And it's kind of the same thing about why you buy organic food, even though maybe it's not that toxic, but don't you want to support organic farmers? And don't you want to save the earth from just one more pesticide from being on there? Absolutely. Um, Well, with that, let's take a small break and then we'll come back and we'll wrap up our conversation with Mindy Green. back with Mindy Green. And to top off our conversation, you know, there are so many people who are interested in essential oils. I mean, as an herbalist, you know, we're always happy that people are wanting to use more plant-based products. Um, But we know that in terms of education out there, there are some things you can read on the internet, but unless you're going to take, you know, a certification course from one of these places that you've mentioned or, you know, one of the many um, aromatherapy courses that's popped up online, we should probably talk about the usage of essential oils. Um, and I know, you know, the things that I teach in my class, but what would you tell the listeners in terms of, you know, just maybe the few important things that they need to know about essential oils before they start using them? Yeah, great. Um, I, I think that essential oils are such powerful medicine that people do need to know how to use them, how to dilute them, and um, what length of time to use them and so forth. So a lot of people come to this industry with maybe one experience or somebody telling them about uh, a great experience they had with essential oils, and that's always welcomed, but um, it's not like an herb tea. You know, it's, it's very difficult to make a mistake with an herb tea that's sold in a tea bag or just, you know, from a, a bulk store. 
Um, the same is not necessarily true with essential oils because a lot of them, most of them are sold without being diluted. Um, maybe you're buying a massage oil and that's great. Or maybe you're buying a, you know, a hand sanitizer with essential oils and that's great. That's kind of a no brainer. But if you're starting to make your own products, then you do need to know um, about some of the safety issues of essential oils. And without going into a great deal of detail right now, because I know we're running out of time, I would suggest definitely taking a class, uh, even if it's just a beginner class, or getting at least getting a good book and reading it very well before you, you plunge in to this modality. Uh, essential oils are very, very concentrated version. I, I think of it as a concentrated version of herbalism. And I think that if you're going to self-medicate, which in many cases, that's what people are using herbs and essential oils for, you need to self-educate. Um, it is incumbent upon a responsible user to really uh, educate themselves. And that could be just, you know, like I said, a, a short course, uh, even your local uh, junior college will have something or a good book or just a local one day class, things like that. Um, but I think the most important thing is dilution. And the standard dilution is a 2% dilution, and it's very simply made with 10 drops of essential oil to one ounce of carrier oil. And that's a very safe application with a safe oil on a person who's relatively healthy. So there are a lot of caveats, and it's very different for children. It's very different for pets. It's different for people who are convalescing or gen just generally have a weak constitution. I'm of the mindset of homeopathic dilutions instead of heroic dilutions. And again, like herbalism, aromatherapists have a wide range of opinions about what is safe to use. But, you know, most of my classes and most of my students, I talk about um, erring on the side of caution. And I think that these, these powerful plant constituents are such that you don't have to use high quality, I'm sorry, high quantity of the essential oils to make them effective. You could use a 1% or a half a percent. And in many cases, that's all you should be using if you're doing skincare and things like that. So I really just encourage the listeners to get some self-education before they start willy-nilly doing things. And, and um, just one last thought that a lot of times people mistake using herbs for using essential oils. And that has happened in a few instances where somebody buys an essential oil on the internet without really knowing they think it's a tincture and they take it instead. Um, they're using an essential oil instead of an alcoholic dilute tincture and you can do some damage. So anyway, um, I really encourage people to learn more. I think that you can get really, really excited about the possibilities of essential oils and herbs. And quite frankly, I'm of the mindset of using them together. So if you're diluting an essential oil into a, a simple plain carrier oil, why not make that carrier oil an herb infused oil? And um, again, there's a whole chapter on how to use herbs and essential oils together in my, in my aromatherapy book that I wrote with Kathy Keeville. And there are many, many good essential oil books on the market. So I encourage your readers to have a reference at hand. Yes, I definitely second that opinion. Um, and I mentioned your book in the introduction, and you keep saying you wrote a book, but you never actually told us um, the name of the book. <laughs> and you didn't really speak about your consultant company either. So in our last few okay. minutes, let's just plug whatever you want to plug about you. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I, I, I briefly mentioned that I wrote a book with my co-author, who's also an herbalist, Kathy Keeville. And it's called Aromatherapy, A Complete Guide to the Healing Art. And in 2009, we did an update to that book. And uh, I mentioned the sustainability chapter. There's also a chapter in there on Ayurveda and massage and uh, perfumery and the sense of smell and many, many other things. Um, I also wrote a book on natural perfumes, which is out of print, but I want to let everybody know that that um, in the next, I'm going to limit my time here, maybe six months, <laughs> I'm going to have that book available in an expanded version on my website. And my website is a host for my consulting company, and my website is greensensations.com. 
And if you Google my name and uh, either aromatherapy or herbs, you'll find my website, greensensations.com. And you can find a lot of free articles on there. You can find lots and lots of um, radio interviews and magazine articles and links to YouTube videos and things like that that I have done. And I don't sell anything on my site, even though I have my books there. Um, one of my perfume book is available um, online. I will be selling that one, but I don't sell essential oils and um, I just sell my consulting services. And I do a lot of consulting, some personal consulting, but mostly for companies that have small cottage industries and um, a lot with essential oils, some with herbs. It just depends on what the needs are of the person who is who is interested. So um, you can go to my website. I also offer a free resource list on there. So you can just email me for that resource list. Well, thanks so much, Mindy. I know for the reluctant consumer that I am, um, I it definitely gives me some hope to know that at least in the beginning of the herbal products industry, that it was people like you and Christopher Hobbs and Rosemary Gladstar and all the one, all the herbalists that we all know, um, have the planet and the plants in mind and not just, you know, the almighty dollar. So I definitely appreciate that. Um, and I want to thank you so much for joining the conversation and educating our listeners um, more about um, herbalism and the importance of being, um, you know, not only a conscious, but a really connected um, consumer when it comes to plants. Well, thank you, Jessica. It was a pleasure being with you, and I applaud all your efforts as well. Thanks for being part of the the powerful warrior for the herbs and the earth. That is my pleasure. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Once again, thank you for joining us on the Herb Walk with Jessica Baker, and thank you, Mindy, for all your work towards plant conservation and activism. If you want to learn more about herbalism, subscribe to the Herb Walk podcast on iTunes today.